If you would, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. Just by way of reminder, the last couple of weeks, Pastor Ryan has been helping us to see from Matthew chapter 5 how Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And last week, Pastor Ryan was helping us to see that love is the fulfillment of the law. Pastor Ryan showed us those things really through biblical theological categories, but several of us, myself most certainly included, have minds that have a difficult time grasping these things in biblical theological categories, so the Bible also illustrates these realities, thankfully for us, in stories and in examples. And this morning, we are dipping into a text that illustrates not only Christ's immense love for us, his fulfilling of the law, but also this calling, indeed this glorious freedom that Christ gives to those who are his followers to possess the same kinds of actions in our lives towards one another. Last week, you might remember Pastor Ryan mentioned, he referenced John 13, 34, and 35, A new commandment I give you that you should love one another just as I have loved you, and by this all men will know that you're my disciples. Well, this morning we're looking at the context of Jesus making that statement and teaching his disciples those truths, which is part of the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse in John's gospel runs from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 17. This is the very last meal that Jesus would have with his disciples after three years of teaching and instructing and leading and pouring into them. This is the last meal he would share with them. And in the midst of this meal, as we'll see in our text, he's going to wash all of his disciples' feet. It is a marvelous text. Maybe It's hard to say that's my favorite text in the Bible, uh, because the next time I preach, that'll probably be my my favorite text. But I tell you what, this is a great text. It's a great text that's probably familiar to lots of us. But let's give it our full attention this morning and see what the Lord will teach us through his word. Will you stand with me as we read again God's word from John chapter 13? God's word says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Father in heaven, would you please really bless us with understanding this text, and would you put together a thousand uh, applications of this text into our lives in the coming weeks? And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So again, the context of this meal, this is the very last meal after three years of ministry that Jesus would have with his disciples. In a half day's time, Jesus would be betrayed. He'd be handed over to civil authorities who would unjustly take his life and sentence him to a humiliating death on the cross. And what, in this very last meal, is Jesus concerned to do? If it were you or if it were I, no doubt we'd be looking to be served. Somebody bring me my plate. This is the last meal I'm going to have tomorrow. I'm going to die. Serve me. We'd be looking for some words of encouragement. Maybe we can have a a time of encouragement where you guys tell all the encouraging things you've learned from me these last three years. Oh, Jesus, you're an amazing teacher. When you teach, I understand things I didn't understand before. You're a great counselor. Boy, the issues in my life, they've been so hard, but you've given clarity to those hard issues. You're a great leader. You're an amazing healer. You're a Lord and Savior. You're a great friend, Jesus. We'd be looking for words of encouragement, but not our Savior. Look at what Jesus is doing. Jesus, who has all authority all authority on earth, he could do anything he wanted. He could heal the sick, and he did. He could cast out demons, and he did. He could calm winds and calm waves, and he did. He could raise the dead to life. He could forgive sins. This Jesus, the all-powerful one, the one with divine authority over everything in the entire world, did not come to be served, but to serve. There are three angles I want us to see out of this text together. I want us to see first what Jesus does for us. Secondly, I want us to see what Jesus does in us. 
And then thirdly, I want us to see what Jesus wants to do through us. So first, let's see what Jesus does for us. This whole episode is a dramatic portrayal of Jesus's own mission in the world. It shows us something very important about what Christ came into the world to do. You can see it from verse three, if you look there. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was returning back to God, rose from supper. That's Jesus' reason for doing all that he's about to do, which is wash his disciples' feet. It's it's because Jesus came from God and he was returning to God that he serves his disciples in the way that he does. Well, why does Jesus come from God? Why? Why did he come from God and why is he returning to God? That's the question. And the whole reason is this. Jesus came to secure our salvation. Jesus came, the whole reason he came was to provide salvation for his people. Christ came to be our salvation. Even this very meal that they're participating in together. It's the Passover meal. It's a meal intended to remind the Jewish people that God delivers his people from slavery. He's a delivering God. Verse one, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come, his hour to depart out of this world to the father, his hour throughout the gospels is always referring to the hour of his death and his resurrection. Even in John chapter two, where he performs his first miracle at the wedding feast in Cana, turning water into wine, his mother comes to him and tells him the problem. He responds saying, my hour has not yet come. That hour is always pointing to the time when he would die on the cross. And that's the context in which Jesus rises from the table and lays aside his outer garments and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet, it is a living, active parable of a greater act of service that would come a half day later when Jesus would hang on the cross for sinners. Jesus wonderfully lays aside the outer garments of his glory. Jesus takes the form of a servant and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is living out an example of what Paul describes of him in Philippians 2. We read it at the very beginning of the services, our call to worship. Jesus rose from supper, verse 4, just as he had risen from his eternal throne in heaven. He lays aside his outer garments just as he laid aside his glory. He took the formal, the formal role of a servant and girded himself with a towel just as he had taken the form of a servant when he clothed himself in our humanity. He humbled himself in verse 5 to the absolute basest of positions. A foot-washing slave, you couldn't be a Jewish slave and wash feet. You had to be a Gentile slave to wash feet. This is the absolute basest of positions. He humbled himself to the basis position where he knelt down at his disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel wrapped around his waist, just as he had humbled himself to a place where he took upon himself not just the defilement of dusty and dirty Palestinian roads, 
but the defilements of a world's sins. And in verse 12, he resumes his place at the table, just as we read in Hebrews 1.3, after he made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In that way, this whole episode is kind of a living picture, living parable of what Jesus has done for us. What Jesus is putting before his disciples' eyes is that he left the utter glory of heaven, perfection. He left heaven to become the infinitely poverty-stricken servant of God, identifying himself with all of the sin that mars the whole human world and every single person that's ever lived in it. This Jesus is positioning himself in the servant's role. Do you ever stop to think about how precious it is that Jesus left heaven, left perfection, and came down into our world and clothed himself in our humanity? The self-humbling of Jesus is worth a lot of deep thought for us as Christians. For Jesus to come down into this world with all of its fallenness, with all of its sin, with all of its shame, and to be clothed with our nature, to wear our weakness, to enter into our frailty, but then even beyond that, to be clothed with our sin. This is the perfect son of God who left perfection to clothe himself that way. And he has taken it and borne it because he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what Christ is doing for us in this text. He is becoming our salvation. He does that for us. Secondly, this is a parable of what Jesus does in us, not just for us, but in us. Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet is a symbolic picture of a different kind of washing. We see this in the verbal exchange between Jesus and Peter in this passage. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Then in verse 8, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers him with these words, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Now that clearly, that's not a reference to the washing of his feet. Fellowship with Jesus isn't referring to Jesus washing our feet. He means something deeper than foot washing. That's why he also says to Peter in verse 7, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but later you will understand it. You'll understand that there's a much bigger issue at stake than foot washing. And if you know John's gospel at all, then you'll know that it's filled with signs and double meanings. Here, Jesus is talking about the washing away of sin, the real washing away of actual sin that mars us up. And Peter resists it. Lord, he says, do you wash my feet? Our pride, says John Calvin, makes it thoroughly disagreeable that the Lord of glory should come to cleanse us. And in that way, this passage, it is 
getting at the very essence of our salvation about what Jesus came into the world to do in you and in me. Christ came to cleanse us, to actually cleanse the real you of all the defilements and all the pollutions of all of our sins. It's exactly what Jesus is referring to when he says to Peter, if I do not wash you, then you have no part in me. The necessity of cleansing is what Jesus is pressing on Peter. And Peter, no surprise at all, argues with Jesus about his utter need for this kind of cleansing. And I wonder, as I was preparing this, I just wonder how many of us argue with the Lord. We're in a little bit of a dispute with the Lord on this front. I mean about the absolute necessity of you being cleansed from deep down pollution, defilements that your sin brings about. Peter throughout Jesus's life argues with Jesus about this. Peter, like so many of us, seeks to manipulate Jesus into being the kind of savior that Peter wants Jesus to be, not the kind of savior that Jesus is. It is entirely possible and likely that sitting in a room this size, even at a healthy church, that there would be people who in your heart, you're in dispute with Jesus about the utter necessity of deep cleansing from sins. The foot washing, it's merely an external representation of a deeper spiritual reality. It's a sign, it's not the reality. You may have had all kinds of external signs. Baptism is an external sign of cleansing. Even church membership is an external sign that points to a spiritual reality. But these are just signs. And a person can go through all the external signs, baptism, joining a church, and not have the actual spiritual reality that the signs point to. For a person to have the externals without the internal reality, like being baptized, without possessing the reality, the actual forgiveness and cleansing of your sins is a terrible position to be in. And I am sincerely asking you this morning, have you personally embraced the Lord Jesus Christ and his free offer to forgive you and cleanse you from all of your defilements of your sin, all the pollution of your sins? Have you experienced something of the removal of all of its guilt? Is the washing of regeneration, is it yours through the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you engaged with the Lord Jesus for your personal sins? Have you gone to Jesus for your personal cleansing? Here again, Jesus' words, if I do not cleanse you, you have no part in me. This is a parable of what Jesus does in us. He cleanses us from the pollution and the defilement of our sins. But notice the nature of this cleansing, because in verses 9 and 10, Peter swings from one extreme to the other. Peter's a man of extremes, always. He's an all or nothing kind of guy. After Jesus corrects him at the end of verse 9, Peter responds saying, well, okay, don't just wash my feet only, but let's throw in my head and my hands as well. 
And there's an important principle that Jesus teaches in verse 10 where he references two different kinds of bathing. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. He's referring, of course, to Judas Iscariot. So the word for bathe is the word for a complete washing. The other word for wash is more the word for dipping. It's the dipping of the hands, the washing of the feet. It's the kind of casual washing that a person does. Hopefully, hopefully you do this more than uh, one time a day. Wash your hands. The one is the word for a total washing. The other is for a partial washing. Now, notice what Jesus is saying because there really is an important principle in this. What he's saying is that there's one general washing. You are clean, he says. That is, those who have come to him and experienced what Paul wrote to, Timothy, or to Titus about, the washing of regeneration, that once for all cleansing in the blood of Christ for the defilement and guilt of sin, that's the primary cleansing. And Peter makes two mistakes. First, he imagines that that one total cleansing is something that needs to be repeated, and it doesn't. <laughs> If you've received total cleansing, if you have been made regenerate, you've been washed, that only happens once. You are totally clean. You don't need it over and over and over again. One time does it. When you're saved, you are washed clean of all of your sins. Do you understand that? That is marvelous. If you've come to Christ for total cleansing, that does not ever need to be repeated in you. But on the other hand, Peter makes another mistake because he fails to recognize that although he has been washed clean from all of his sins, there is also a partial cleansing, if you will, that every Christian also needs on a day-to-day -day basis that also comes by God's grace through Christ's blood. J.C. Ryle says it this way, once joined to Christ and cleansed in his blood, a believer is made complete. They're, they're completely absolved and freed from all spot of guilt and are counted without blame before God. That's the general principle. But for all of this, says Ryle, they need every day as they walk through this world to confess their daily failures, to seek God for daily pardon, they require, in short, the daily washing of their feet over and above the great washing of justification, which is theirs the moment they first believe. Ryle goes on to say, he who neglects this daily washing is a very questionable and doubtful kind of Christian. That to me is such a helpful principle for Christians to know. Though we've received total washing, there is also this need to keep coming back to Jesus like we did in the prayer of confession, saying, Lord, cleanse me from my daily sins. There's no question that once we're joined to Christ and cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are, we're cleansed eternally. One day we will stand before God in heaven and we will know how very cleansed we've been. It'll be a marvelous day when he looks at you and does not see spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing because of Christ's blood that's made you that way. 
But as we walk through this world, there is never a day that the strongest of Christians does not get hammered with all the defilements of the world and the flesh and the devil. They just entangle our legs and hinder us from running. It invades our minds, our character, our thinking, our priorities, our standards, every area of our life, and it affects our living. Who of you has ever lived a single day of your life in sinless perfection? Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need regularly, daily to keep going back to him for daily cleansing. All right. There's a need for both, not one or the other, but both. You need total cleansing. He provides that the moment he saves you. Total cleansing. Daily cleansing as well. That's why the blood of Jesus is the glorious reality that it is to the people of God. And the blood of Christ does both for every Christian. Well, this text shows us what Christ does for us. He's our salvation. This text shows us what Christ does in us. He cleanses us from all the defilements of sin. Thirdly, this text shows us what Christ wants to do through us. Let's look at verses 12 through 17 on that front. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. Good, great titles. I am teacher. I am Lord. You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. So I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What is Jesus wanting to do through those with whom, those for whom he has died to save and he's died to cleanse. What he's wanting to do through us, through you, if you're a born-again Christian, what he's wanting to do through you is create within you a servant ministry. Now, you might remember in the context of John 13, John doesn't record this for us, but the other gospel writers do. You can look at Luke. His account is, is excellent on this front. As this meal was happening... The other disciples are disputing among themselves, which of us is the greatest? <laughs> which of us, when you come into rule, is going to sit right at your right hand? I'd like it to be me. <laughs> I, I'd like to vie for that position. That's what they're consumed with. Which of us is going to be the greatest? And Jesus corrects their worldly thinking by washing their feet and telling them afterwards, blessed are you if you do all that I have commanded and exampled for you to do. Think of this example this way, all right? How many of you took art classes in elementary or middle school? All right, a lot of you, all right. I had an art teacher that would pencil draw something, and as we were initially learning how to draw various things, they'd pencil draw something in kind of light strokes and then give it to us and say, all right, you fill it in. You fill it out. You put in a little texture. You add some vibrant color. 
That's generally where art lessons begin, a teacher giving you light pencil stroke drawings. Example is exactly that. This foot washing of Jesus is the pencil stroke. Now fill it in. That's how he intends this example. This principle shows up tucked away in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul is giving Timothy some ideas of what he might do in ministry. And one of the ideas he gives them is you've got a bunch of widows in the church. You might employ those widows. You might even pay to sort of bring them on staff at the church. But here's the ones that I want you to employ. It's the ones that are already engaged in washing the feet of others. If foot washing had become an ordinance, it wouldn't have marked out anyone from another Christian. All Christians were doing it, but not all Christians were doing this. It's not an ordinance in that way. Those who are mature, those who rightly understand what Christ has done for them and what it's produced in us are given to a life of laying our lives down and taking up menial tasks, putting towels around us, so to say, and wiping one another's feet. I wonder how many of us at, uh, of us at Emmanuel really, like really, even when nobody's looking, are this way towards one another. How many of us see our aim within church life to fill in with vibrant color the pencil drawing of Jesus' example of stooping down low and washing feet? It would be one thing if Jesus called us to wash his feet. Probably most of us would rise to the occasion and say, I'll gladly wash your feet. I would consider that an honor to wash the feet of Jesus. But Jesus here isn't calling us to be his servants as much as he's freeing us to be servants towards one another. How many of us find it a glorious privilege to actually wash the feet of those who are dirty, even dirty with sin? In a marvelous way, that is the example Jesus is setting here. He's washing the feet, not of those who have earned a place of honor, Here's whose feet Jesus stoops to wash. Here's the 24 feet. It's doubters like Thomas who said, I am not going to believe until I see the holes in his hands and his feet. It's those who would vie for positions of authority and want places of honor like all 12 of the disciples. It's those who stubbornly resist the teaching of Jesus and seek to correct Jesus even as he's teaching, like Peter. Now, shockingly, two of these feet are those who would hold the money bags and give every impression that they're fully trustworthy, but something very different is going on in their heart because in less than a half day's time, he would betray, utterly betray. Those two feet were washed too. It's those like Nathaniel, I'm reading through John's gospel. He's so disrespectful when he first meets Jesus. He responds to meeting Jesus, essentially saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Rude. <laughs> it's those who swing from all in to all out in a single breath and constantly need to be corrected as they seek to correct the Lord and the teacher, like Peter, those who can't stay awake in the, the hour of greatest need, just stay awake for an hour and pray with me, like Peter, James, and John. It's those who lack commitment 
In true backbone, when the going gets tough, they run away and scramble. Like all 12 of the disciples when Jesus is crucified in less than a day. Those are the 24 feet that Jesus stoops down to wash in their sin and defilement and pollution and rudeness and not getting it. None of it stopped Jesus from stooping down and washing their feet. Jesus goes down. He goes down. He lays aside his outer garment. He goes down. He girds himself with a servant's towel. He goes down. He gets the basin of water. He goes down further. And he's seen kneeling at these sinners' feet. And then when he finishes wiping and washing their feet, he clothes himself afresh and now sits at the position of dignity and authority. He rises from his position as the most significant person at this meal. Jesus kneels down. Why did he do it? He knelt down for the sake of his disciples' names. Jesus kneels so that his disciples' names would be written in the Lamb's book of life for all eternity. He kneels so that our names would be written down in heaven. I wonder how many of you would say my life is consumed with that kind of service towards others. That's what Christ intends to make in us towards others. The one spirit The one spirit that he wants to create in us is the servant spirit. The one attitude he wants to create in us is the servant attitude and the one role that Christ intends for us to take in each other's lives is the servant role. If we're honest, we all shrink from it. Sadly, it's so sad, but the longer we're in the church, the more we rise to positions of being able to teach or lead a community group or whatever it is, the more we tend to shy away from places of menial service, little tasks, little servant roles. Those are for other people, not me. We want to be served rather than serve. It's always easy to spiritualize these sorts of principles and say, well, we're servants of Christ, but what has being a servant of Christ actually produced in your life towards one another? That's the question. One pastor I listened to teaching on this this passage said it this way. He said, the way that you test out the measure into which you are a servant of the Lord Jesus is the way in which you are willing to put on the towel for other people. So think about it for just a minute. Start making a list in your mind. Who are the hardest people in your life right now to love? My guess is you can string together a list pretty quick. There's people that are hard to love. Think of the ones that are just difficult, relationally difficult, hard to be around. You don't hit it off. They require out of you a lot of patience. How do you respond, especially to those hard to love ones? Are these the saints that you track down? after services and invite to come over to to your house for lunch? Are these the kind of people that you're eagerly seeking to tailor fit how you might wash their feet and serve them from the heart? 
sinners, even redeemed sinners, even the most mature of redeemed sinners, they have issues that make them hard to love. If you know them well enough, you'll find them hard to love because sins cling closely to every single one of us. Serving a person humbly and sacrificially requires the new birth. It comes right out of what Jesus has done for us. The question before us is, will we stoop down with a water basin and a towel and wipe away the filth from their feet? Now, I can't make an exhaustive list of this because, again, this is an example that you're to fill in with vibrant color. Jesus just set an example that we're to follow. Blessed are we if we follow in this example that he set. But here's a couple of ideas for you to begin considering. I mean, think in the realm of gifts. I remember Ryan sharing an illustration when Jordana, I don't even know if Jordana's here this morning. I think she was like third grade. She had somebody who was mean to her in her class. And uh, Ryan's advice uh, was not retaliation, was not go tell the teacher, was not confront. It was find out what that child's favorite candy bar is. Go and buy it and give it to her. It's that kind of thing. So undeserved, so unfair, not reciprocal. Start making lists of ideas of the ones who are the most difficult, the ones who are maybe the most depressed. How can I bless? The ones who are less well-off financially. How can I, how can I, how can I bless them? How can I give invitations to spend time? What if every believing person at Emmanuel, what if we all looked for the most lonely person here this morning and we made it our aim to grab them and to say, I am glad you are here. I'm glad you're my brother or my sister in Christ. I'm glad we share fellowship together in the Lord. I'm glad you're my friend. I'm glad you are in my life. What if you hunted down the most depressed person and just sought to bless them and pray for them and put your arms around them? What if our single brothers and sisters became overwhelmed with the amount of invitations, not just to come over and babysit our kids so that we can get a date night with our wife, but the loneliest and most depressed single person in the church is extended the most invitations to actually hang out and live life together with you. What if that transient couple that you know they've got plans to be out of Louisville in two months' time, what if they were shown such warmth and tenderness and care that for the rest of their lives, they'd never forget the impact of your love for them? What if that couple that has children that are a bit unruly, that are hard to invite over, what if, what if they're, they're invited over? Maybe hide the Sharpie markers from your white couch, I don't know. Are the unworthy ones the recipients of your foot washing activities? Unworthy ones are really the only kind of people there are. <laughs> because we're all real people and we all have sins of various kinds. And so real people ought to be the special targets of your greatest service of foot washing kinds 
of love. That is what we've been freed up. That is what Christ desires to create within his church. And this is not a side issue of the Christian life. This is the stuff that the Christian life is to be all about. In the midst of this action, John records for us, I think, it's either one of or the most beautiful statements in all of John's gospel about Jesus. He says this, it's right at the very beginning, having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. Now that is quite a statement. Having loved his own, why is he doing all this? Having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. If you want a life text for yourself, you probably couldn't do much better than that one. Just plug in your own name to that. Having loved Jeff King. He loved Jeff King all the way to the end. Having loved Stephanie Chavez. Sister, he loves you all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Having loved Tyler Phillips. Brother, he loves you all the way to the end. Plug your name in there. Say it to one another. Having loved you, he loves them all the way to the end. Well, to what end? You know what? To every conceivable end that you can think. He loves them to the end that he's prepared to die for them, which he would in a half day's time. He loves them to the end that he's never going to cease to love them. He loves them to the end that when you are at the very end of your tether, he's not at the end of his tether. He doesn't ever reach the end of his tether. He loves them all the way to the end. And brothers and sisters, here's the reality. When we know that, I mean know it, not just know about it, but when we're experiencing that kind of ravishing love, when we're convinced that nothing can separate us from his love, what can stop us from that position? What could stand against us? What could hinder us from living to the praise of his glorious grace? Well, because Jesus, the all-powerful one, has loved his own to the very end, exampling it by washing their feet and even more so in dying for them the next day, his love for us is what sets us free to love one another in similar self-sacrificing, humble, servant-hearted ways. Here's my very favorite sermon concluding uh, sentence, if you will. Part of me wishes every sermon, I know every sermon can't conclude with the same sentence, but this is my favorite. Isn't it the greatest thing in the world to be a Christian? Isn't it just the, I mean... <laughs> Is there anything better than to belong to him and have all of your sins forgiven? Why on earth, if you're sitting here, would you not want to be one if you're not already? He gave his life to become our salvation. What he does for us, takes our sin, forgives us, cleanses us of all unright. That's what he does in us as well. He cleanses us makes us, the real us, clean. And then out of that sets us free in humble, sacrificial service towards others. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has loved us and he will love us to the very end.
won't we make it our aim to fill in with the most vibrant colors that we can with our whole life, the stunning marvels of our great Savior? That is the fulfillment of the law in story form. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are, you are a marvelous Savior for us. You're a marvelous Savior. You're full of goodness. You're full of humble service. You love us, and you love us all the way to the end. I pray that we would be taken up with you, and we would labor. We would willingly, we would gladly bear the marks of being yours as we look for ways to wash the feet of others. Lord, help us to be a people who at least figuratively, have a towel wrapped around our waist and are eager to lay down our life to serve others that you would be put on display with how we love. We thank you for loving us. Pray that you would produce within us all that the gospel is able. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.